BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. The Bowery Boys episode 178, The Crystal Palace, America's First World's Fair. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys are brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobook entertainment. For a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash boweryboys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today, we're taking you to a New York that may seem like it's taken from an old science fiction novel and an extraordinary glass and steel palace that contained the world's most marvelous inventions. But this is not science fiction. It's the New York Crystal Palace, home of America's first world's fair, or as they called it back then, the exhibition of the industry of all nations. And this exhibit created great excitement, not just in New York, but throughout the country and around the world. People were coming to this fair because it was a stunning piece of architecture itself on the site of today's Bryant Park. But it, there was also the great exhibit inside where great art and sculpture and inventions were on display for the general public. This was an interesting era because New York was still trying to prove its superiority in the world and wanted to present itself in context with these great international powers. And this was not just a symbol of superiority or, or catching up with the rest mm -hmm. of the world, so in a way, insecurity um, and overcoming this insecurity, but it was also meant to spur innovation and new new invention mm -hmm. in our country. So this is the story of that visionary structure, how it came to be. We're going to give you a thorough walkthrough, and then we're going to tell you what happened to the Crystal Palace. Because just as quickly as it appeared, it vanished. So join us as we head uptown to tour the Crystal Palace exhibition of 1853, America's first World's Fair. So, Greg, before we just get our tickets and head inside the Crystal Palace, perhaps you could situate us here on the map? It's hard to imagine where such a structure would even sit in New York City. But its home was what we call today Bryant Park, located between 40th and 42nd Street and 5th Avenue and 6th Avenue. So today, That whole space? That, no, most of that space. So the western portion of that space is occupied today by Bryant Park. The eastern side is, of course, the home to the New York Public Library main branch. 
which was built in 1911, decades after the Crystal Palace had come and gone. Right. Well, let me take you all the way back, in fact, to 1823, when this was just a sort of barren patch of grassy mm-hmm. land. This was a potter's field. Between the years 1823 and 1840, thousands of people were buried here. Now, the old potter's field used to be down in Washington Square Park, but in the the 1820s, with the rise of wealth in New York City, that became a fashionable district, so they just moved that purpose up to this, at the time, unused plot of land. Because the city was creeping northward after the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, which really even created these blocks. But this rather morbid little piece of land here would receive a new lease on life, thanks to the city, however, or rather, the thirst of the city. Um, In the 1830s and 1840s, New York decided to solve its water crisis with the Croton Aqueduct System. We have a whole pretty good show on the creation of the water system, that is, transferring water from the Croton River, that's upstate New York, down to New York. So the entire system opened on July 4th, 1842, and included in that system was a grand, fantastic structure that sat here on the east side of this plot of land called the Murray Hill Distributing Reservoir, sitting almost on the spot where the public library is today, almost exactly And it could hold up to 20 million gallons of water. It was an incredibly imposing building. It had 50-foot-tall brick walls that were so thick. I believe it's 25 feet thick around the perimeter so that people could actually stroll along the perimeter. And it actually became... There was a promenade, right? Yeah. At the top of it. And so it actually became a popular spot for people to spend while away their afternoons. And that's the reservoir part that's on the eastern side, so like the library side. What at that time is happening on the western side, today's Bryant Park? So that adjoining land there, which was once the Potter's Field, obviously they can't have that next to the reservoir anymore. It became a little strolling park called Mm -hmm. Reservoir Square, which would technically remain the name of that land for a few decades. Reservoir Square here would not remain a sort of an empty plot of land for very long for this grand new proposal was on its way. Was on its way. But first, before we get there, we have to go Mm -hmm. to London, if you don't mind. It's 1851, and the city has thrown their own grand exhibition called The Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations. It was a huge hit, constructed with a lot of funding by Prince Albert, who was married to Queen Victoria, and they were big supporters of the Arts. This structure in Hyde Park was an enormous cast iron and glass construction based on the designs and the look of an English greenhouse, mm-hmm. but much, much larger, using this new cast iron technology to construct these giant structures very quickly and very large. And this was so large that it was constructed over the trees of Hyde Park itself. And they filled it with all kinds of arts sculpture and and new inventions and technology essentially almost 
anything that could be made by the hands of man. Because everything's changing. The way that people grow crops, the way that people produce clothing, the way that people buy their food, everything is changing in the industrialized nations. And so these kinds of exhibits come along to showcase these new changes, but also to spur innovation by bringing together inventors. It's kind of like a big conference mm-hmm. at the same time, or a big trade show. Now, you had said that this resembles a little bit like an English garden or greenhouse. Greenhouse, right. So I would say in picturing this and in picturing the New York one, which is about to be built here, if you've been to the New York Botanical Gardens, that has a very similar structure, obviously much smaller and an actual greenhouse. But in terms of how the framework and the design of the building is, it's related. And not to get ahead of ourselves here, but after these exhibitions, greenhouses would be built all over the world kind of modeled on the same look and using a lot of the same technology and learning from some of the mistakes that were made along the way. And and many of these would be called Crystal Palaces. In fact, I got this book from the library called Crystal Palace, thinking it was about this exhibit. And now it's about, Every th- uh, it's about greenhouses. Them, right? oh. I should have known because it was next to a book called Sheds and Barns on the bookshelf. And I thought, oh... What an exciting section. Um, Context is necessary in public library. But back to London, it was only open from May to October of 1851, and six million people attended this thing. It inspired others, including one in Cork uh, the next year, and then Paris. Now, Paris had been having exhibitions since 1798. So let's just get that out of the way, because there might be like an exhibitionist out there who's like (laughs) going to take issue with the fact that we're talking about London's like it's the first. Paris had been having these since... um, holding these since 1798. However, those exhibitions were mostly about French wares and and inventions and artwork. But the point that you're getting at here is that all of these places (laughs) in Europe are having these basically these festivals to their own productivity and to those of Europe. So New York at this time, which is trying its darndest Mm -hmm. to be kind of like a European city, is seeing what's going on and saying, wait a minute, maybe it's time for us to get into this game. Well, there was a presence. There was an American presence in the London exhibition in 1851, uh, but it just wasn't that strong. Look, it was expensive to get to London. It was expensive to take these things over. Can you imagine how much it would cost to like take your new tractor technology over to London in 1851? Well, as we go through all of the things that were displayed at these crystal palaces, I want you also to keep in the back of your head, how did it get there? Because most of these things took transatlantic voyages mm-hmm. or were transported cross-country. Which was another reason that American manufacturers thought that it would be a lot handier to have it in New York City. But there were also European manufacturers who wanted to bring their things over to the U.S. because the U.S. represented a huge new market for them, too. So the group of these manufacturers in Europe approached the man who was uh, the U.S. commissioner for the London show named Edward Riddle. He took the idea back to New York, and he approached other promoters about getting in with him on this and investing in this new show, including uh, approaching P.T. Barnum, who at the time said, no way, he wasn't interested. He had his his own thing. Yeah, he was down doing the Fiji mermaid. He had his thumb on other projects. But however, August Belmont got in on it, and along with other investors, and, and they raised some money. 
he then needed to find a right, you know, the perfect spot in the city for it. And the first place that came to his mind was not today's Bryant Park, because that was way out of town. That was too far. Yeah, well, if you think the 1850s, early 1850s, and sort of where the center of town might be, we're talking below 23rd Street, essentially. And right. most of the wealthiest people, for instance, are over on Fifth Avenue, going as far as maybe 34th Street, right? right. Well, it's funny that you'd say 23rd Street and Fifth Avenue, because Riddle and the others went to city council, and they demanded free space in the city. So the city came back and said, okay, how about Madison Square Park, 23rd and 5th? Okay, they were, that was a fashionable area, like yeah, you said. and fairly new park. But what was around it? All these fashionable residents, mm-hmm. and the last thing they wanted was a huge construction project going on, and tens of thousands of people stomping through their streets trying to get to a big show. So they protested, and the city instead offered Reservoir Square for a dollar a year. So they did get a very cheap lease for five years or so. The only requirement that the city set was that the structure that would be built there had to resemble the London Crystal Palace. Oh, so they wanted, they didn't just want a version of the Crystal Palace. They literally wanted the same Crystal Palace, pretty much, right? <laughs> pretty much. And, and this new cast iron technology was being used with great success by James Bogardus, who was seen as a, a pioneer and sort of inventor of this cast iron facades and construction that were beginning to show up in lower Manhattan and in these fashionable uh, department stores that we've talked about in other shows like Ladies mm-hmm. Mile. So this was part of the plan to build something with the same look. Unfortunately, at this moment in the story, James Riddle takes off and leaves all the investors in his wake. <laughs> Why did he just disappear in the middle of this? Well, no, he just he just made money. He just cashed out. He was <laughs> gotcha. a speculator, and he profited handsomely on this. It also sort of hurt the image of the entire thing because. He- Whereas in Europe, Queen Victoria and other governments had sponsored those exhibitions, Mm -hmm. in the U.S., we were priding ourselves on the fact that we didn't need no stinking royal money, right? (laughs) We didn't need—we're no nanny state. No, absolutely. We didn't need the government. We had private industry to pay for the whole thing. Right. That didn't really— pay off, though, did it? We kind of did need that and didn't have it. At this moment, yeah, as Riddle takes off, we're stuck with what could be a huge collapse and and kind of a bad reputation, like, oh, look, so this thing is really about just making money. So Riddle's out. Who's on board next here to guide this into the future? They found a man, a respected lawyer and uh, legal scholar named Theodore Sedgwick. Sedgwick decided to sort of change the conversation and make it a little bit loftier, make it less about the cash. He made it more like this exhibit was not just about making money. It's about showing the world what the U.S. is capable of. It's about opening up the U.S. markets to to the world, showing, at the same time, Americans' fine arts, maybe elevating mm-hmm. taste. And because we don't have a monarch, we're all in this together. And this would actually, when we walk through the building later, that sort of theme is cast upon several of the exhibits, as we will oh, see. Oh, yeah. Well, so Sedgwick also sends over envoys to Europe to try to find some exhibits. In the end, they did sign up more than 4,000 exhibitors, uh, more than half of whom were in Europe. 
So now we have the things that are going in it. Mm-hmm. So let's get this thing built. Who was the actual designer? Well, naturally, they had to make it into a contest. Oh, they were. That's what they did during the 19th century. Everything was a contest. Central Park was a contest during this time. Right. Sort of the reality shows of <laughs> of the day were the sort of giant competitions to build things. The real architects of New York. Or in this case, uh, from Denmark and and Germany. Oh, okay. I know. Lots of people entered, but the the winners were George Karstensen, who was Danish and who had actually developed the Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen, and Charles Gildemeister, who was from Bremen, Germany. They didn't even know about this competition until three weeks before the deadline, and they quickly got in their plans. Wait a minute, they got in their plans and then... They sailed over on a boat? And no, they, they were get... living in New York at the oh, time. Oh, they had, okay. Yeah, oh, okay. But they were relatively unknown in New York. Gotcha, okay. It, and it's funny because their design is basically a smaller version of the London design with a giant dome on top. And I think you're going to take us on a on a walk through. Uh-huh, around this building on the insides of it. So. But just to visualize what their design was and what would be constructed, it's kind of like taking... A Greek cross, a cathedral, with a giant dome over the center of it, right? So you've got a cross, dome over the center, and then you connect the angles from each of the ends of that cross, creating basically an octagon. So Mm -hmm. a giant octagonal building with these north-south, east-west giant naves as in a cathedral. But the whole thing is built in cast iron and wrought iron and covered in windows and with lots of arches. It's like a cathedral meets a greenhouse meets a train station. Mm -hmm. And in fact, train stations throughout Europe and, and some in the U.S. too, like Grand Central, that would be built after this would take a lot from the cast iron and glass technology that was being really on display here. If you imagine now, you know, getting out of the the BDF, the 6th Avenue line at at Bryant Park, getting yep. off at 42nd Street, walking up to the sidewalk, what you would see if, if you were looking at Bryant Park was this giant glass cathedral with a giant dome on it that takes up almost the entire Bryant Park. Mm-hmm. And behind it, the reservoir. The reservoir, which you could, of course, see through the glass. The dome was 100 feet in diameter, rising almost 150 feet from the ground to the very top of the lantern. The the entire structure on the inside was covered in 15,000 panes of enameled glass. There was a problem at the London Crystal Palace because they didn't treat the glass. Mm. So during the day, when the sun would come through, it would actually heat the thing up like a greenhouse, (laughs) and it would become unbearably warm inside. So in this case... They coated the glass so that that would diffuse the lights. I will just say the construction of this of this structure was not easy, which is ironic because these cast iron buildings are supposed to go up very quickly. That's one of the the benefits of constructing in this manner. This thing really got bogged down in delays. On October 30th of 1852, they held a ceremony when they erected the first column. And for for months, <laughs> if you pass the site, you'd just see this one column still standing oh. there. They became uh, ridiculed in the yeah, press. Yeah, and later press reports, like, they would keep defending themselves. Well, they uh, wrote a whole yeah. book. In 1854, they wrote a book called The New York Crystal Palace, an illustrated description of the building by Carstensen and Gildemeister. You know, I flipped through this. 
at the New York Historical it's Society. Very defensive, right? They they spend pages and pages defending themselves against these these accusations of them being the cause of the delays. They blamed it on the on Sedgwick and the others who cut their budget back, who created all sorts of other delays. It's really not that interesting. <laughs> but let's say that there was drama and they were forced to defend themselves. Well, people for wait were waiting for this. They were impatient. And meanwhile, there were like thousands of objects that might have just been sitting around, you know. Well, indeed, things were arriving because they had scheduled the opening to be May 1st of 1853. And they had to push that back. But people had already started shipping things over and coming over themselves. Yeah, planning and planning trips, planning uh, visitations, and there were some perishables in here. So it's the summer of 1853. We have people from all over Europe arriving with their magnificent displays and their fine art, and they're thinking that they can put it in here. They, they can't yet. And so they're taking trips around the country. They're just kind of hanging out in the city, <laughs> including lots of nobility. It's right. A, There's a lot of royals that are floating right. around, just sort of waiting, looking at their timepieces. It's a, and it's warm. It's summer. It's a hot mess. It's a crisp still mess. <laughs> the opening is delayed a couple times until July 14th. Finally, this thing opens. Thousands of VIP are in town, including President Franklin Pierce, who gives an unmemorable speech, and the public races in to see what's going on in, in the 173,000 square feet of exhibition space inside, only a third of which are occupied by exhibits at this point. <laughs> at that time. It would take two or three months for everything to be fully moved in and for the whole effect to really be had. But once things were in place, this was a hot ticket. I'll take you on a leisurely tour through this most spectacular of places in New York City history. That tour will begin after the commercial break. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And now, back to the show. Okay, Greg. So it's 1853. Mm -hmm. The thing is open. The Crystal Palace is open. Right. And let's set this in September because we want this to be a full body experience with all the necessary artifacts inside. Absolutely. So September yeah. 1853. 
A lovely fall day, and we're heading uptown to go to this. Right. So we're on the Sixth Avenue omnibus. Right. Of course, the subway went open for decades. Right. So the on the omnibus will get out there. Now we're going to role playing. Choose your own mid nineteenth century avatar here. Perhaps you are a newly arrived Irish lad. Who just came over? A Bowery boy. Uh, a Bowery boy. Or you could be, you know, like an upper class lady with her friends or even someone, you know, with your family. Imagine having some children here. Everyone's dressed in their Sunday best. It's a bright, sunny day, and beams of light are reflecting upon the glass of the Crystal Palace. And then once you get in, you're just literally bathed in the warm glow. Okay, so we're there, and we're walking up these stairs from the sidewalk to the entrance. Right. Now, there's three entrances. Choose whichever one you like, because let's choose, say, the one on 6th Avenue. So you walk in. We're going to pay your admission. And so it doesn't really matter which entrance, because we're going to start this tour from the very center of the Crystal Palace. Under the dome. Under the dome. I want you to... First, notice, however, how loud it is inside. You know, this is essentially one gigantic room, and there's children running around. There's lots of different sounds, many different kinds of smells, including probably a lot of cigar smoke. And a cacophony of New Yorkers talking and screaming and laughing, mixed with sounds of machinery that you can't quite place. So we're heading right to the middle, and if you're standing right there in center, around you are these four naves of equal size that are radiating out from that. And then above you, as you look up, there is this open mezzanine that also wraps around the room. Along the side, the side nearest to the reservoir, there's another room called the Machine Arcade. On top of the Machine Arcade is a final room that is devoted strictly to paintings. It's called the Picture Gallery. So that's mm -hmm. the basic layout. So we're under the dome in the center of the Crystal Palace. Right. So standing in the middle of the room is the object for which the entire Crystal Palace rotates, the equestrian statue of George Washington that was made by the Baron Carlo Maronchetti. Sounds fancy. But here's the thing, interesting thing, though, is we're about to see hundreds of classical or classically inspired sculptures in all sorts of robes. But this George Washington is dressed not like a mythical leader, but in simple, even rumpled clothing, in great contrast to all these gods and goddesses and things that are surrounding him in the naves. So the whole thing is anchored in, a, the, in this patriotic statue of, of Washington. Right. The intriguing thing, just to keep this in mind, is this is the first time that you're seeing this many sculptures in one room. It's a totally new experience for most New Yorkers. Because the Metropolitan Museum, for example, isn't open yet. No, there's no building like that in New York. This is, of course, accompanied by dozens of rich tapestries and flags of the nation that are hanging above your head. One knave has a selection of torture implements and weaponry from the Tower of London. How cheery. <laughs> Well, nearby, kind of perhaps even reflecting some of the light off of its deadly blades, is this spectacular device called the Fresnel Light, which is essentially a gigantic lantern made of prisms and lenses that are rotating around a lamp. It has the approximate effect of a searchlight, like a Hollywood premiere searchlight. So that would probably catch and dazzle your eye, especially during the evening as the sun is setting. 
So this giant light is mixed in with the statues and the and the and the tapestries yeah. of nations. So that's the interesting thing is you see all of these sort of artworks mixed in with modern marvels. But the naves would be sort of lined with sculptures, yeah. and then off to the side of that, there were exhibit spaces. Right. So what you would probably do first is go down one nave, and then that nave would be connected to a different wing or a division. So there were then four wings or divisions, and we're about to go down those one by one here. Okay. The first wing, let's start with the United States wing, which was on the northeast side here. Being the United States, what would greet you when you walk in but a military court of muskets and filled artillery and pistols and models of steamships? In this room, you would have also seen something called the quadruplicate boat. Quote, and I will be quoting a lot from the official catalog guide. Mm -hmm. um, um, I would expect no less. <laughs> the quadruplicate boat, quote. It's, it's called, Could you say it one more time? <laughs> it's called the, the quadruplicate boat because quote it is alike at the top and bottom and having a double hull it may be capsized with impunity unquote <laughs> um, also in this room was a new invention called the nautical life bucket that you could put on boats and it you could bail out water if in a crisis and when there's no crisis you just sort of flip it over and it becomes a deck stool so it's also sort of a home show and a boat show. Oh, I mean, in fact... A sort of Javits yeah. Center. Well, you're going to discover really quickly that there's so many specializations that are here that it's kind of hard to imagine that, like, most visitors finding a lot of this fascinating. In fact, the guide itself notices that. Of a particular exhibit, quote, We round a pyramid of spools containing colored sewing cotton. This section will not detain the visitor long unless it may be one who has a special interest in bleached and unbleached sheetings and shirtings, long cloths, bed tickings, ginghams, or printed calicos. <laughs> so, I mean, I That's suppose <laughs> if you had a, an interest in bed tickings, you might spend a little time here, but we don't, so we're going to keep going. Yeah, let's keep moving. There's, let's keep moving, but let's stick to the U.S. Yes, we're going to, because there's dozens of different areas that you're going to pass that are like a wall of chemicals, rooms filled with medicine chests, with thousands of different kinds of drugs. Imagine a room of just drugs, like sitting around a museum. I'm sure that would be, yeah. I'm not sure what you're looking at, really. <laughs> You're looking at progress. Housing appliances, gas fixtures, because, of course, gas lighting is all the rage now in the city. Is It's being installed throughout the city. All manner of furniture, billiard tables, pianos, even a section for coffins. How grave. <laughs> and then, oddly enough, right next to a panoply of various timepieces and stopwatches. But I would imagine th that each of these objects was an improvement somehow. So yeah. it wasn't just a display of timepieces, oh. but these were probably showcasing some new invention or a new way of keeping time. These were the finest axes. These were the finest watches right. of made in the United States. And, and perhaps from... they didn't need to be wound in the same way or <laughs> they kept time longer. And using U.S. iron and steel products, right? So that's going to probably get you a little exhausted. So you may sit down at one of the eating saloons where oh, you yeah. could sit and have a, apparently an overpriced snack. Things nothing, haven't changed. <laughs> nothing's changed, right? 
All right, let's do another wing. So that's the U.S. wing. Let's go down the Great Britain and Ireland wing, which was to the south. Okay. Well, one of the things here, which I think would be my favorite, is something that was invented in 1846, so quite new, called the Printing Telegraph which is essentially the godfather of the ticker tape machine. It used a piano keyboard to type letters, which would then be automatically printed. So it was a typewriter meets a piano? Yes. It's, meets it, a telegraph meets machine. Meets a telegraph machine, right. Wow. And actually, the player piano also traces itself to this particular machine. So it was you know, a very right. versatile object. This would be right next to a fine display of Worcestershire sauces. Quote, all of which are esteemed exquisite condiments by bon vivants. Naturally, that would be right next to a selection of seeds and examples of mammoth vegetables. So I just like the idea of like gigantic pumpkins making right. like a trip right. across the And Atlantic. then sitting in a greenhouse <laughs> yeah. in, during the summer of 1853. And then, of course, through all of this, there's still statuary all over the place. At the very end of this court of the British and Ireland wing, you'll find a, quote, truthful and finely chiseled bust of Jenny Lind, unquote. She was the biggest musical star of the age and would, of course, famously perform at Castle Garden with P.T. Barnum as her promoter. All right, let's keep it. Let's keep it moving yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Cross over another nave into another wing. Yes, another wing. The one devoted to Belgium, Germany, and France. Okay, so we're in the southwest mm-hmm. quadrant of the building, sort of at the corner of Sixth Avenue. This was probably an incredibly popular with the ladies, because of course, with Fabrics. France, well, fashion. They have an extensive collection here of gloves and handkerchiefs, laces and brocades of various kinds. A couple other things I just want to point out in this wing. You'll pass through a display room that is, again, full of drugs. There's just a lot of drugs here mm-hmm. provided by the company Gehi, which is today still operating in pharmaceuticals. And so it's kind of interesting. A lot of the sponsors, a lot of the companies that you are wandering through are companies that actually are still with us today. This is sort of at the start of their careers. One, perhaps all of this promotion abroad paid off. I just think it's funny that you are walking through a room of pharmaceuticals, and it's right next to an entire room devoted to collars and dyes. Um, (laughs) Your eye is kidnapped by this dizzying array of ultramarines. Following that is a room for chocolates and preserved fruits. Mm. <laughs> so finally, the fourth wing. So the northwest corner, sort of the corner of 6th Avenue and 42nd. It's kind of a miscellaneous wing. It's, it's for Italy, Austria, Holland, Haiti, Cuba, several other countries, including Canada, who is principally represented here at the Crystal Palace with sleighs and seal furs. So Italy is in this area also. And naturally, of course, being Italy, there would be fabulous bronzes, lots of statuary, mosaics, marbles. You would also see a rock crystal fountain, which had hypnotic effects upon the eye. You could also see through that, but there was also water coming out of it and Mm. also the sunlight coming down. Mm. A lot of these things sound really disorienting. If I have a hard time at Costco, you know, (laughs) or in a Walmart or something, I think I would have just passed out by walking into this place. Well, so get this. So if you're staring at that crystal fountain, Uh you're surrounded by cases of bohemian garnets and a gigantic prism on the other side of the room, which is reflecting rainbows upon all the artifacts in the room. And finally, near the end of this wing, uh, you will see 
one of Samuel Morse's electric telegraph stations. So if oh. you want to send a message, you could do so here at the station. In this court as well was a display to photographic pictures and daguerreotypes. Right. Which were basically, just to simplify it, photographs upon a metal surface. Here you would quote, see the first portraits taken from nature by the photographic process taken in New York. So the very first pictures of New York taken outside were displayed here as well. There was a tableau from Brooklyn, something that they called then the crystallotypes, which were photos printed on prepared paper, mm. not metallic plates. There was an entire section devoted to a very in-demand photographer of the day, Matthew Brady. Very famous. Who, of course, would be famous for taking all the great portraits of the mid-19th century, including Abraham Lincoln. Just a few years later, when he, when he spoke at Cooper Union. So this is easy to imagine, then, how this would spur interest in these new inventions and mm -hmm. also other inventors to network with each other, to get ideas from each other. So this would become actually very crucial in the history uh, in the development of the photography process if you will just really quickly because the mezzanine to be honest is kind of a lot of the same it would be right because there, so there are stairs when you walk into the structure when you walk into the building from the three big entrances there are stairs that go up to the second mm -hmm. level that's kind of a balcony, a mezzanine yeah. looking out over the rest of the... And would, and would correlate to the countries that were below it. But there were three or four things I just want to point out, and then we can move on. First of all, up here, you would see a model of a brand new monument that was being built, the Washington Monument. Oh. And in fact, there would be someone there that was collecting donations. The funny thing is, it wouldn't actually be completed for another 30 years because Civil War kind of delayed the construction of that, and it did take them a while to get uh, proper funding. Up here on the mezzanine, you'll find a room devoted to German toys, a section devoted to taxidermy, then a little room of, of little china, little beautiful little trinkets. That would be a special section just for a, a company downtown, actually, named Tiffany and Company. Oh, wow. So they had a display here at the Crystal Palace. Then, of course, you had not one, but two displays of surgical instruments, a host of artificial limbs and body parts that were also displayed up here, not that far from the toys, just to point that out, and an example of selections of unfortunate wax figures, quote, in every conceivable distortion and fracture, unquote. And that was being displayed <laughs> on the second floor in full sunlight. In full sunlight, yes. Ooh, so that they got more distorted as, they, as the months <laughs> went on. So that's sort of like the main room, but if, if you could stomach all the, the wax limbs and surgical instruments, you might want to go down to see some of the heavy lifting being done in the machine arcade. Right. Let's go back down to the dome, and we're going to take the nave that goes directly toward the reservoir, so toward mm -hmm. Fifth Avenue. The building was dedicated to larger machines. Like you said, there was a lot of farming equipment, other machinery, which I'm going to skip over because I think we're getting a little dizzy in here. We're a little saturated with, uh, with items, yes. Right, but I do want to note something very important happened here in May of 1854 when a certain Elisha Graves Otis would make a dramatic demonstration before a crowd of people, he entered a 
passenger elevator, which was not really very known at the time because elevators seemed like a good idea, but very dangerous. What happened if the cable broke? So he got in before a crowd, was lifted into the air, hanging from the cable to the top of the structure, up to the ceiling, when he pulls out a dagger on a pillow, (laughs) and he reaches above... And he reaches above his elevator, because it didn't have a ceiling, and he cut the cable with the dagger. And you can just imagine the crowd... throughout the the room. As he rubbed the dagger against the cable, (laughs) they were all just sweating it, wondering what was going to happen to poor Elisha. Finally, cut the cord, and nothing happened, for he had invented the safety elevator. And that, of course, would be probably one of the most, if not the most important invention to come out of this whole place. Well, because it wasn't just about revolutionizing elevator construction, but that would change construction, that would change the size of buildings, that would change skylines around the world. But I think we need a little fresh air and a new perspective, Greg. So I am going to pull our party out of there just across the street from us between 5th and 6th Avenue on four, on the north side of 42nd Street is a giant tower a 300 foot tower called the Latin Observatory which was perhaps the the biggest hit of the Crystal Palace and it wasn't even on the site itself well it was the tallest structure in New York City it topped out even over Trinity Church, which was the tallest permanent structure. Right. And it was... 315 feet, made of wood. Imagine, yeah, the size of like a 30-story office building. Surrounded by nothing else. You know, you could see for miles. The, the tower was shaped like a very tall, skinny cone. Its exterior was open to reveal its wooden skeleton inside. And there were observatory platforms, three of them in total... One at the very, very tip-top, crowned, of course, with a giant American flag. It opened on July 1st, 1853, so two weeks before uh, the Crystal Palace actually opened. You could walk up to platforms either 125 feet, 225 feet, or all the way up to 300 feet. Because unfortunately, this safety elevator was a little (laughs) bit uh, too experimental to be used over on the Latin Observatory. Right, it was just across the street, and it was not installed in said observatory. (laughs) Uh, The New York Times claimed that you could see from the top 40 to 60 miles. It sounds like an extraordinary view, and it's funny because in the future, millions of people would flock to Midtown Manhattan for the views that it offers. You know, yes. of course, that would be down at the Empire State Building and Chrysler Building and other tall structures. But it's very funny to think that that grand tradition of gazing out upon the whole city began here. At the Latin Observatory, admission 25 cents, children half price. <laughs> so it was on the other side of 42nd Street. Then whatever happened to that? Three years later, in some eerie foreshadowing, a fire started on 43rd Street, and it spread to several other buildings that were on the block, and it caught the tower ablaze, and people came from all over the city to watch this tower burn. Well, yeah, like a Roman candle. And people were panicked that, it would, that the fire would jump across 42nd Street and catch the Crystal Palace on fire, which it did not. 
Well, I mean, that summer and fall of 1853, people really did try to get into the spirit of the Crystal Palace. Preachers even gave sermons of the moral significance of the Crystal Palace. You know, people didn't even really know how to behave in a space like this. There, there weren't that many rooms of this size. There were several instances of, like, objects being knocked over. There were some, quote, notorious vagabonds unquote, that were robbing and pickpocketing people and they were arrested. So things are going downhill. Yeah, they are. It would seem a little ragged after a while. There were excessive leaks when it was raining. And so you can imagine what all that water was doing to all these fine paintings and damasks and tapestries. Mm. Things were going very rapidly downhill. It was actually losing money. And they wanted to keep it open because the other exhibitions had had a finite date, like six months of being open, but this one was being run as a business, so they were trying to they, they wanted it open keep all it the going. Time. Right. Well, it's a, they spent a t- like so much money to open it, they needed to recoup some of that. So they need to basically bring someone in who was known for rallying big audiences to grand spectacles. So they, they looked no further to someone who they had already asked a little bit earlier from the popular American museum downtown, P.T. Barnum, who finally relented. Mm. Uh, They pulled him into the venture. He didn't even think he could salvage the palace, but he gave it a shot. So there was a re-inauguration the following spring on May 4th, 1854, and it looked like it was kind of going to work. There were 20,000 people that showed up. This inauguration ceremony featured people like Horace Greeley and Henry Ward Beecher came over from Brooklyn from the Plymouth Church. You know, they pulled out all the stops and it became a little bit someone like Barnum's Museum. In fact, George Templeton Strong said, quote, the building seems all but gutted. Its character has changed. It is now an extension of Barnum's museum. In July, promptly, Barnum quit. He had had enough. He was, it was very frustrating for him. He said, quote, I was an ass for having anything to do with the Crystal Palace, unquote. <laughs> Gets right to the point. Anyway, the exhibition closed officially on November 1st, 1854, a financial failure with almost $300,000 of debts. So you had the largest building in New York City here, basically lying dormant. It was rented out to other events, including the American Institute Fairs, which... They claim to be the first World's Fair in the United States as well. They would hold a number of these in the Crystal Palace. They were much smaller, however, in scope than the giant international Crystal Palace exhibition. So a lot of different things kind of came through over the, Mm -hmm. the next three years. In June of 1858, the city took over the building and they rented it out that year to the American Institute again for another one of their fairs. On October 5th, 1858, as one of these fairs is in progress, at 5 p.m., smoke starts rising from the north wing of the building. 2,000 people are inside taking in the American Institute exhibit when fire raced along the wooden floors and shot up through the wooden roof. It jumped from exhibit to exhibit as attendees raced down stairways to the exits. Suddenly, the construction of glass and iron became deformed before the very panicked eyes of the attendees as the glass heated to such a degree that it started to melt, as did the wrought iron, twisting in the heat as it gave way, pulling the cast iron down with it. 
12 minutes after that first smoke was spotted, the dome came crashing down to the floor. And then within about 25 minutes, the whole place was a smoldering heap. Miraculously, nobody died in this. Everybody was evacuated so in, safely. In less than 30 minutes, this thing was destroyed. Gone. And it is incredible that no one, there were no casualties, given the fact that there would be so many in New York in the 19th century due to fire-related disasters. And this is where we'll leave the story today. However, the story is hardly finished. Because, of course, this is the area of today's Bryant Park. We're not just going to leave you in the smoldering ashes of an old fairgrounds. We've got so much to tell you about in the history of Bryant Park. Join us online at BoweryBoysHistory.com, where Greg will be putting up all kinds of illustrations of the Crystal Palace exhibition. There's a lot of full-colored, beautiful pictures of the exhibits themselves, but, you know, also of the fire. You can also join us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at BoweryBoys. And if you like the show and you want to help support us in the production of the show... Go to BoweryBoysHistory.com and click on Donate at the top. Every bit of support helps, even a dollar a month. We yes. really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, we, we do appreciate it. And one final thank you from us. We want to extend our heartfelt thanks to the Guides Association of New York City. They just had um, an award ceremony honoring some of the best in New York travel, culture, Preservation, museums. And we received an award just a couple weeks ago from a ceremony that was held at the Leonard Nimoy Thalia Theater at Symphony Space in the Upper West Side. So I'm holding on to it right here. It's a little crystal um, apple, and it's its outstanding achievement in radio program podcast. It's our first trophy. It's like it's and it's crystal. It's, <laughs> it's a little crystal. It's, it's, it's a little crystal palace. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's extraordinary. So thank you, Gannick. We greatly appreciate it. Also, a thank you to the New York Historical Society and to Room 300 Art and Architecture at the New York Public Library for help in researching this topic. So on our next episode, we return to Bryant Park. Until then, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.